In our most recent episode of The People's Theology, we began a conversation with Dr. Reggie Williams, professor and social ethicist, about how we can live a faith that actually says something to the world around us. A faith that can offer something to the hurt and pain and doubts that's big enough for those realities. We're going to continue having that same conversation with Dr. Williams today. But before we do, I want to return to something he said in the last episode. Something that I think will frame up where we are going. In the last episode, Williams talked about how our identity in the Enlightenment shifted from being connected to the world and to others, and it became about the self about being individuals, enclosed and isolated from others. Now, we've already talked about how that hurts our faith, how it stops us from being a communal kind of people. But there's another consequence to this relocation of identity into the self. And something else happens. And, well, I'll just let Dr. Williams explain. The individual, that's what the philosophers created in short. But the individual... The one who is a law unto himself, the one who has the most capacity for logic and reason, was the man, white men. Women don't have the same amount of reasoning. And when you get into the transatlantic slave trade and interacting with people of African descent, you get a hierarchy of being with white men on the top and black women on the bottom. Great chain of human types. It's not simply the individual who becomes the center of identity. It's the self-sufficient white male. That's the central figure. And everything else is measured upon that, in an overly simple way, the question, who is responsible and respectable? Who should lead? What does it mean to be civilized? All of those questions are redefined out of this image of the self-sufficient white male. Now, there's so many different ways that we could talk about this, so many different places that we could focus on. But since we are having a conversation about faith that matters, there's one very specific way we need to focus. One thing that changes so dramatically by this centering of white male identity that it shapes all of Western faith, all of Western Christianity. And it's so pervasive, so substantive, that it bleeds into media conversations and then even shapes things that we don't even know we're talking about. What is it? Well, it's how we see Jesus. Just because it makes you feel uncomfortable doesn't mean it has to change. You know, I mean, Jesus was a white man too. Uh, Look at this tweet from a far-left activist, Sean King. I can barely believe this, but I'll read it for you. Yes, I think the statues of the white European they claim is Jesus should also come down. They are a form of white supremacy, always have been. In the Bible, when the family of Jesus wanted to hide and blend in, guess where they went? Egypt, not Denmark. Uh, I said Jesus was white, so did he have white privilege, blah, 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 blah. For white people who don't know, white Jesus in the black community is a mythical creature that has enormous power, right? It's insane for anyone to believe in a deity that doesn't look like them, right? So what happened? What happened to change the way that we see Jesus? And what does that mean for the faith that we live today? When we say Christ-centered, what do we mean? What Jesus are you talking about? to say Christ-centered. Jesus, as 
Spanish. Jesus is Puerto Rican. Jesus is Mexican. Jesus is Nigerian. Jesus is French. Is incarnational. That's us making sense of Jesus within our within our particular life, our lived experience. Jesus is white. Is Jesus in reference to a template, a historical archetype made in the Enlightenment to arrange a hierarchy of being? This figure, white is a recent invention. The Germans and the Italians who eventually became white and the Irish found out when they come through Ellis Island what that means to Mm -hmm. be white. In the United States, it is in addition to a political marker, Mm -hmm. um, it is... The arrangement, the way systems and structures in the United States are arranged in favor of a type for an an ideal type for an ideal community. Mm. It is simply religious license for a contrived political and uh, biopolitics. What Williams just said is really important. There is a distinct and essential difference between saying that Jesus is Irish, for example— and saying Jesus is white. One is the contextualization of the person of Jesus for our moment, our place, and our people, whereas the other is the politicization of the body of Jesus in order to hold up the ascendancy and continuity of power to define who is in and who is out. That's not to deny the Jewishness of Jesus. Instead, it's to say that Christ is present in all places, that Christ is present in 10,000 places, and that we can see ourselves reflected in Jesus. But the other hand, saying that Jesus is white, well, that's actually to say that nothing else is reflected in Jesus but this one type. So, a white Jesus is a kind of a conjuring, Mm. you might say, um, it's an invocation of a recent interaction in history around human difference in capital. White, mm. to say white is to invoke that. White is self-possessed individual ideal. Another way of saying this to understand what we're saying when we're when we're using the language of racism versus xenophobia versus prejudice, we're saying different things. We're saying different things. Although in common conversation, the words are inter, they're interlaced. Really, white supremacy is manufacturing maintenance of systems and structures for whites only. I said that pretty quickly, but manufacturing systems and structures for whites only. White Jesus is the theological legitimation for that project. White Jesus legitimizes that project. You want whites only. Um, and, and if you're not white and you invite them into the community, you want them to accept white as standard and norm. That's what it, that's what it would mean to have a multicultural community, is to have a community of different bodies who are conformed or assimilated into white modes of thinking 
in mm. in um, worship and the sacred. Um, white Jesus is the great tamer of the savage. <laughs> and this white Jesus is connected to, to, to modes of power um, and capital, not suffering. But when Bonhoeffer heads into Harlem, he, he encounters worship amongst the people who would say, God was with Jesus on the cross. God is with us in our lived experience here in the United States. It's the suffering Christ, not the resurrected, risen with all power. Now, it's not to say that, you know, these black Christians don't have a resurrected Christ. They definitely have a resurrected Christ. But that resurrected Christ is the hope that they hold on to in the context of identifying with him on the cross not a demand that they live in terms of politics and all the system structures on the earth. The Jesus that we imagine shapes the faith that we live. If we imagine a white Jesus who upholds the continuity of white power, well, then that will shape the faith in the churches that we build. But if we know an incarnational Jesus who identifies with the suffering and the marginalized and who creates space, even for those in power, well, then that shapes a different kind of ethic and a different kind of faith and will build a different kind of church. In our last episode with Dr. Williams, we talked about how this was a concept for Bonhoeffer, but that through his experience living in New York, seeing the Harlem Renaissance. It moved from concept to reality. And so I think the next question that we have to ask ourselves is how do we take this concept and make it a reality in our lives? Because simply learning more doesn't seem to be shaping the culture any differently. So what comes next? How do we actually change and live a faith that matters? If I'm going to engage this in a much more profound way as an ethicist, this this problem of formation racially, mm-hmm. I'm going to need to dig into some more and different and creative pedagogies. Because as it seems right now, having students, having people read books is as important as it is, is only a step. We can get people who are practiced at hearing new information you know, um, and we can form our minds, you know, wrap our minds around content that, oh, okay, that makes sense. But we are not just enclosed rational minds. Hmm. It might be, it might be logical, it might make sense. You may crave more information, but, you know, um, to actually be in the world differently means something more than that. How do we, as it were, step outside of the reality that has been created by centuries of cruelty, um, bent, as it were? We live inside of a bent reality that's been so distorted by centuries of understanding white as normal, normative humanity. And I mean, I want to make a distinction between white people and whiteness. Whiteness is the process of knowing individuals or knowing bodies 
um, according to this racialized structure. And white people are formed by whiteness. People of color are all formed by whiteness. Whiteness is, in a sense, like a script that we're all given at birth. We are protagonists or antagonists. There is no middle, you know, there are no extras. Protagonist or antagonist. Our roles in the story are given to us um, by the bodies in which we enter the world. And we learn our roles based on continued multiple interactions in society as protagonist and antagonist. This is the script speaking to us. Okay. It demands a certain performance from you based on the body that you are inhabiting because that is your role. George Floyd's murder was not an isolated incident. This is another one. This is another instance of the fate of the antagonist. He's destined for that experience. Mm. Even when you watch it on, you're, you're watching it happen right in front of you. The script will demand that you find something about the character of the antagonist that they wield against him and put him on trial for his own murder. Always happens. They'll dig up something. You know, I mean, he may have had something in his system, but you watched that man kneel on his neck for eight minutes and 36 and 46 seconds, choking him to death. But he may have had something in his system. Ahmad Arbery visited a home that was under construction before those vigilantes uh, chased him down and he failed to reply to or obey simple commands from armed vigilantes with guns chasing him as he's jogging. You know, visited a home, failed to commit, failed to to, uh, to adhere to these simple commands. Because why? Because the protagonist is always somehow innocent, even if caught in the midst of murder. We have there's the because they are the protagonist, they engender sympathy. Trayvon Martin weaponized a sidewalk. Not innocent. No angel. No angel. He weaponized a sidewalk. You know he was going to do something anyway. He's the antagonist. This is the story that we're all birthed into, and it is as natural and reflexive as breathing because we are formed in it. More knowledge, if you read, and you're reading books and so forth, can, that's the start. you got to do that. That's the start. But how do we come out of the formation? How do we move out of that formation? How do we stop practicing antagonist and protagonist people of color need to recognize the script and we've we've been working against this for 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 decades and centuries another thing another thing about that which is to say around christ to say black jesus is not like saying white jesus Hmm. it's not just a pendulum swing to say black jesus is to it is, is to is to in um is to give reference to a jesus who's not reined in by that performative nature of whiteness this is a Jesus who's on the outskirts of the script, so to speak, whose presence interrupts that script. This is a pariah Jesus, an anathema Jesus in a white racist world, the one who comes from beyond into our midst, showing us another way of being together. 
We exist within streams of Christian thought, which include their various interpretations of the mission of the church that predate us, that are centuries old. The gospel is here, yet for many of us, it's hard to find the gospel in a forest of lookalike. For those of us who may hear the good news in embodied concern for your neighbor, can see multiple modes of Christian existence in the world as counterfeit and lookalike. I often turn towards an experience that I had in West Africa to describe what I'm meaning, what I'm saying here. There in Ghana, you go into the slave forts. Cape Coast, for example, where the Obamas visited. To go into the men's dungeon, you're going to go underground. Some have described it as a kind of a burial. You go underground, but when you pass into the men's dungeon, you're passing under the windows of the chapel, the Anglican chapel. Men were held down there. Uh, you can still see a line on the wall where the feces was calcified at about three feet high. Um, in darkness, feces, urine, vomit, bodies decomposing until the boats would come and load them onto the boats for an even worse fate. While, I mean, they're in this position of extreme suffering right underneath people who are worshiping. That worship is not dead. That's my point. That worship is not dead. That is a mode of Christian existence in the world that is with us at this moment as we are speaking. Christians who can pray to God and worship God right in the context, in the midst of human suffering. They don't see it, or maybe they, they do and they don't, con they don't count it within the moral scope of their responsibility as followers of Christ. How is that happening in our midst today? And those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ do not shut up, as the bowels would say, as the, as the Bible would say, shut up your bowels at the suffering of others, but see in the suffering of your neighbor the face of Christ, who says, I was a stranger, you let me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. There is the gospel. So the church is existing within these multiple traditions of Christian experience. This is so important what Dr. Williams has just said. There are multiple kinds of Christianity on display. There is one that is conceptual, theoretic, and disembodied. It has a notion of Jesus that upholds the continuity of white power and is unable to speak anything good or hopeful or challenging to the suffering around us. But then there is another kind of Christianity one displayed for Bonhoeffer in the Harlem Renaissance, a Christianity of the suffering Jesus. And as followers of Jesus today, well, we have to choose which vision of Christianity do we live into. This was the big wrestle for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
not only what kind of Christianity did he live into, but how do you help people deconstruct their old, conceptual, empty vision and live into something new? Uh, one more thing about Dietrich Bonhoeffer in regards yeah. to this kind of Christianity. Um, he was so troubled by the fact that Christianity in Germany could not address this, Mm. could not address this. Christianity in Germany was insufficient to the task that was set before it in the Nazis. And so many Christians went along with the Nazis without Christian support. You don't have Nazi Germany period was insufficient his Christian concept of person that became a concept initially, and he's writing it becomes discipleship when he comes back from New York. This Christian concept of person is try, he's 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 trying to reform something in Germany, pushing his fellow Christians um, in a way that would allow them to deflect this hmm. kind of immune, maybe in a theological immune system for them, um, and it, it didn't. It, it just it didn't work. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do it. If you read Susanna Heschel's book, Aryan Christ, in 1939, theologians meet at Wartburg Castle to hand to the German people a Christianity sufficient for their Aryan status. That's an Aryan Christ. Again, the national, local rendition of white Jesus. This is rampant in Germany. Why can't they see how evil it is? They inhabit those traditions like the one above the slave dungeon that compartmentalizes faith in Christ away from embodied life in social existence. Mm. But those of us following Christ who can see the moment recognize that the gospel speaks to our lived bodied existence, the empathic nature of love your neighbor as yourself informs what it means to follow Christ. There is something deeply hopeful and beautiful about what Dr. Williams just said. But if I'm honest, well, I also have to admit that sometimes I can feel cynical about whether or not the white evangelical church, the United States, the church that I'm a part of, my team, whether or not we can reform and change and imagine something different. Yeah, see, there is one of the problems that Bonhoeffer had. Um, There were things that he was trying to hold on to with regards to the West and to Germany in particular Hmm. that kept him from being able to deliver on on, um, the problem that he saw. Um, You're not going to hear, he didn't hear in Harlem, um, reform white Christ. Hmm. He didn't hear that in Harlem, but he did recognize that Christ must be rec- Christ must be seen within the suffering with those who are suffering. And he's trying to reform something in Germany. Nah, that needs to die. Mm. It needs to go. The, um, but here in the United States, it may be that the effort to reform some of this Christian, um, some some of what we call Christian. Um, is a lost cause. It just may be a lost cause. Um, we may be rubbing, butting our heads up against 
that for good. It's the thing. I mean, it's it's when that white church or that white Christian college tries to redeem itself by bringing in black people. <laughs> you know, that's not what you need to do. What you need to do, in fact, is to interrogate and undo that script of whiteness that informs what we understand as sacred, as civilized, as culture, so forth, all around a template of an ideal type. That needs to be completely undone. But we are in that same situation today. Yes, I would certainly affirm that. We are there today. We are there right now. Um, for yeah, sadly, so we are definitely there. Mm. We will. I mean, I don't know. I mean, for some people, is there any possibility for health? Mm. I am a Christian. I'm an ordained reverend. For me, absolutely. No matter the toxicity of this historical ideology of hate and harm and, and devious longings, you cannot put the gospel in a box. Mm. And the work is not ours. The work is God. God invites us to partner with God in that work. So am I you know, hopeless that we can't reform? No. You are not to do the reforming. You're simply to say yes to God and go about doing the work that God is doing in the world because God is active. Hmm. God is at work in the um, body of Christ for God's sake. Take hope take heart the work is not yours the battle is not ours it's the Lord's and we are co-participants with Christ in the work of God in the world for justice sake we may not have it in the White House we may not ever have it there in the White House or in the, the political powers that be that are constantly trying to maintain systems and structures for whites only. That may not be where it's at. Well, where is the body of Christ active in the world today? Our siblings, our family, mm -hmm. we, we have them. Mm -hmm. They're here. We cry, we, we cry with others when they're in, in pain and suffering. We rejoice with our sisters and brothers in rejoicing. We celebrate, you know, we break bread together and we love one another as Christ has loved us. Mm. That's what we have together. We've got mm -hmm. that. And we will continue to push back against injustice. That's what we do. Every time my cynicism wants to undermine my faith, I am reminded by leaders and pastors like Dr. Reggie Williams, that the work is not mine. And honestly, I'm not the primary worker. That all around us, there are brothers and sisters who are pushing back against injustice and always have been and always will be. And God is at work. 
within and around and beyond us. We just need to start looking in the right places. And then we'll see it. We'll see where it's always been. You've been listening to The People's Theology, a podcast from Missio Day Community Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you for listening. If you would, it's a huge help if you go review the show on iTunes, leave us a comment, but more than anything else, would you share this episode with someone you know? Someone who's wrestling through what it looks like to have a faith that matters. Someone who's wrestling through the cultural narratives of whiteness and the story of Jesus. Our hope more than anything, is that this show would be a tool for you to use in opening up conversations with the people that you love. So would you share it? Tell someone you love and have a conversation about Jesus in a way that might empower us to live in embodied faith. And then maybe tell us how it went. I'd like to know those stories. Thanks for listening. We'll have a new episode out next month.